Welcome to the Australian Christian Lobby's Voice for Values. This episode contains discussion of themes some may find confronting. Welcome to Voice for Values. I'm Martin Isles. Last week I read a most fascinating and troubling legal case coming out of Canada. It was the decision in the Trinity Western University case in which a university, Trinity Western, an evangelical Christian organisation, was hauled up to the Canadian Supreme Court on account of its religious beliefs. In particular, that university asked its students to sign up to Christian standards of behaviour and commit to those so long as they remained at the institution, because it is, after all, a Christian community institution. But uh, that commitment that those students were signing up to included one to uphold the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman in their life and in their conduct. And incredibly, on account of that commitment, there were law societies in British Columbia and Ontario who refused to accredit the university's law degree. And the university appealed to the legal avenues that are available there, and recently it got to the level of the highest court in Canada, which is the Supreme Court. And unbelievably, the Supreme Court agreed with the law societies. They agreed that the law societies could decide that that university's law degree may not be accredited because the beliefs espoused in that code of conduct were harmful to LGBTIQ people. Now, this is language that we hear more and more, that certain beliefs, particularly around sexuality, are harmful. And it's carrying out into so many changes in our culture, including legal changes and changes in the education system. We see same-sex marriage, changes around gender and transgenderism, understandings of family through surrogacy and so forth, sexuality and what it's for and what's good, homosexual, heterosexual and other minorities. And You know, the reaction against those who dissent is so often very powerful, even up to being taken to the Supreme Court, as in the Trinity Western case. The question we have to ask is, what's going on in the West? What is driving this change? Where's it coming from? And how serious is it? I am joined today by the Australian Christian Lobby's Director of Research, Dr. Elizabeth Taylor, to talk about this important issue. Dr. Taylor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Martin. Nice to be here. Dr. Taylor, uh, you heard my introduction there and the things that I described, and in particular, that statement from the court, which I think many listeners will have heard before, that these beliefs are harmful. Now, that seems to be an emerging narrative uh, in our culture here in Australia as well. What's going on there? What is driving that? Yeah, there's an unusual belief system behind this, and one quote that comes to mind is from the Marquis de Sade, who was of the opinion that sexual appetites were as important to life as uh, the appetite for food, and that these appetites needed to be gratified with equal abandon and uh, without any moral uh, confines. So from this you have, and this is increasingly gaining traction, from this you have ideas that were promulgated by Kinsey later on in his... um, two reports published in 1948 and 1953 on male and female sexual behaviour. And Kinsey was of the opinion that the that all sex was natural and therefore good, and that the only thing that was unnatural was were the constraints and the moral taboos that we had constructed as a society around sex. So the problem, for example, with the Trinity Western case is that that university had this community covenant which brought into question the validity of certain sexual expressions, certain sexual behaviours. Uh, and that is, well, wrong according to this worldview, because all sexual expression is all sexual behaviour is good 
and needs to be liberated. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, it, it's rather a radical idea of Kinsey's. Um, the, the interesting case with Trinity Western is that it's not just sexual minorities that are, um, would need to restrain themselves, of course. It's heterosexual people or heterosexually attracted people who decide to maintain sex for marriage. So that that's the idea that there should be any restraint around sexuality in, in the case of Trinity Western affects people regardless of their sexual orientation. The idea that sex should be reserved for marriage, um, that's the premise that is being challenged in the case of that can- Canadian. And many Christians out there find themselves uh, rubbing up against this worldview uh, in, or clashing with the worldview is probably a more accurate way to put it because Christians tend to have a much more exclusive understanding of sexuality, of gender, of sex itself, of marriage, uh, a much more exclusive and confined view, as we said just then. It isn't actually one that merely excludes homosexuals. It excludes heterosexual sexual practices as well mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that they are not uh, within the bonds of men, woman, marriage. We find ourselves clashing, therefore, with the worldview. Why is that? How do they characterise what we believe about this stuff? This is the result of 70 years of the sexual revolution working away to erode our boundaries around sex and to say that those boundaries are socially constructed, that those boundaries are damaging to the extent that they limit our individual freedoms and particularly damaging for people whose uh, sexual preferences fall outside what Gail Rubin described as the inner circle of acceptable sexuality. So Gail Rubin was a uh, lesbian anthropologist who's still working in the US, and she um, challenged the idea, why should there be some sorts of sexuality which are okay, which are heterosexual, monogamous, uh, reserved for marriage, and anybody else whose sexual preferences didn't fit that narrow profile should be marginalised or outside this inner inner circle of acceptable sexuality. So um, Gail Rubin founded one of the first, the first, lesbian S&M nightclubs in Chicago, I believe. And so obviously her sexual preferences fell outside the inner circle of acceptable sexualities. And so there's been increasing pressure from Kinsey in, in late 40s and 50s through various thinkers through the course of the sexual revolution until now. We've come to this strange position where we are agreeing with the Marquis de Sade that it's dangerous to limit sexual appetites. One of the things that's quite interesting about Kinsey when I was first reading him that was shocking was that you can only agree with his premise if you think sex is never damaged and his premise was that the uh, unhealthy aspects of sex, uh, that sex itself was never damaging, that it was only our uh, social constructions around sex that limited it to, to marriage and to heterosexual marriage and that denigrated other forms of sexual expression. He thought that this was very harmful and unnatural and not good. And that then feeds into um, a, a philosophy. So when you first read Kinsey, you have to then, uh, I remember thinking, well, that's extraordinary because obviously we think some forms of sexual activity are damaging. And you would think of, um, you know, sex with children, for example, or incest or bestiality and I was thinking to agree with Kinsey you would have to agree that none of that was harmful and then of course if you read further into Kinsey you'll find that he's very supportive of all of those things because he's proposing a very radical thing which is to dismantle the entire edifice of uh, moral constraints and taboos around sex. Now from a Christian point of view we would think those restraints and taboos are there for our protection and particularly for the protection of the vulnerable but Kinsey would say no no freedom means getting rid of all of those constraints and all of those moral judgments so that all sexual activity is regarded as equal acceptable and good. So really these are two polarised worldviews where on the one hand you have people saying that they're being harmed because of the exclusive view of these things, they fall outside of that exclusive view and on the other hand you say no the exclusive view is there to stop people being harmed by going and doing the wrong thing. So there's a great conflict going on in the worldviews. I want to pick that up right after the break. We'll be back after this. Voice for Values at acl.org.au 
Welcome back to Voice for Values. I'm Martin Isles. I'm joined today by uh, the Australian Christian Lobby's Director of Research, Dr. Elizabeth Taylor. We just had a discussion about the historical development of ideas that say that that exclusive views of sexuality around a Christian understanding of marriage and, and one man for one woman and this kind of thing have been causing great harm to many who are in the community and in the society that do not fall within uh, these rigid structures. It is true, isn't it, that the concern that people like Kinsey have, and many philosophers and many political activists, is that this exclusive view of sexuality, this exclusive view of marriage that Christians hold, that it's one man, one woman, etc., it's heterosexual and so on, uh, and it's for men and for women and gender is binary and all the stuff that goes around that, uh, that this exclusive view has actually been adopted by Western culture for a very long time, and that means there's a whole category of people, which is potentially huge, uh, who are suffering as a result of that, because their proclivities uh, and their interests and their orientations are being questioned and oppressed. Um, can you speak to that for a moment? Mm. So I think we probably need to um, talk about heteronormativity here, this this idea. We'll, 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 I'll tell you a bit about what that means and the definition of it, but it's important to notice that the view of heterosexuality as being the norm and uh, gender congruence, which is the opposite of, of transgenderism, as also being normal and expected, that's not just from Western civilization. that's um, common to humanity, it's cross-cultural and throughout history. So most of us would think of this as, as heteronormativity as a um, social expression of a biological principle of reproduction, without which the human race probably wouldn't have got this far. But um, heteronormativity is uh, basically the idea that babies who are born with male bodies will be boys and grow into men, and babies who are born with female bodies will be girls and grow into women, and that in the absence of other information, it's reasonable to expect that they will probably be attracted to one another, get married and have babies, and that marriage is a um, good institution because this is a, a safe place for those children to grow up and for um, each parent, male and female parent, to share in the nurture of the children. That um, So they've given a name, heteronormativity, this label, mm -hmm. to what we used to consider to be simply normal. I'm yeah. just sitting here saying heteronormativity is the fact that boys are boys, girls are girls, boys like girls and girls like boys, boys and girls get married and they have children who are boys and girls. Mm. That is now called heteronormativity. It's been given a label. That's right. So it's quite funny because when you explain this to people who have never heard it before, mostly you're met with sort of a blank stare. Why do we even need a word for this? Because it's just the way the world is. But mm. according to the advocates of this particular worldview, um, which... Uh, we'll discuss in a bit more detail. Advocates for this worldview believe that, and it's postmodernist, believe that the world could be arranged in any number of ways, but that heteronormativity, the idea that these things are normal, then creates an other. So if one thing is normal, then things that differ from that are um, lesser. There's a hierarchy of values which prioritises and privileges the heterosexual and the gender congruent, and therefore heteronormativity, upon which our society is based, uh, are in, is inherently discriminatory and uh, damaging. Well, it's oppressive. It's oppressive You're to oppressing LGBT a whole people. category mm -hmm. of people who, who are now marginalised because they don't feel like they fit within that strict definition of heteronormativity, whether it's because their gender identity is different mm. or whether because their sexual attraction is different uh, or whatever that may, or their family structure is different somehow. Mm. They feel outside of the scope, so they're oppressed. 
Absolutely right. So they don't see their experiences reflected in mainstream culture. Um, romance novels in high school normally talk about boy-girl attractions and that this uh, is damaging to those who don't see their own experiences um, reflected in the So these people must culture. be damaged all day, every day, because they're constantly confronted with a society where male-female is the norm. Whether you look at the majority of couples walking down the street, whether you read the average novel in your library, whether you, wherever you go, whether mm. you meet the average person who is from a particular family and they've got a mum and a dad, which is the norm, um, these people are institutionally oppressed on every hand by all of the features of our society. Absolutely. And this is the extent of the stigma that they suffer on a day-by-day basis. So this is the basis of the argument that our society arranged on heterosexual principles, on heteronormative principles, is inherently hostile to people who have different experiences and different ideas of what is normal for them. So what do they do? How do, mm. they, how do they escape their, their oppression? Well, the, the only answer is to change the culture and to make those things which have been uh, regarded as fringe or the proclivity of a minority group to celebrate those in mainstream culture, to promote them, to uh, al- provide examples in... Uh, in movies, in literature, for um, youth in particular who may be um, same-sex attracted or have some uh, transgender issues. And so you'll see that this is um, really getting traction in mainstream culture now. So every movie that comes out has uh, at least a, a minor character who is homosexual, whereas a long time, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been highly unusual. There are transgender books being written for teenagers now. And of course, programs like uh, Safe Schools have, have ensured that uh, libraries need to be stocked with these books. We need to read stories about transgender children to four-year-olds. And if you look at the contents of municipal libraries, it's quite interesting to see that they're getting rid of books like Thomas the Tank Engine, because that affirms traditional gender stereotypes. But on the other hand, they, they can have a lot of books about you know the boy in the dress or um this is an endless project because Mm. um you find heteronormativity as it's termed not just in the big ticket institutions of society like the family but also in the storybooks as you say but also in mere speech um and in mere uh, ways of existing that most people have in the society so that the project to undo the oppression is so tremendous uh, is that why we're now getting down to the level of, of people declaring that these very beliefs are harmful and need to be stopped by law? Yes, that's right. And so you should not, if you hold these beliefs, these you know reprehensible, retrograde, old-fashioned, heteronormative beliefs, the first important stage is to uh, check your assumptions and to monitor your language and to um, make sure that you don't indicate that you hold these beliefs by any bodily gesture or um, slip of language. So uh, pronouns, for example, you it's polite to request uh, somebody to introduce themselves by their name and their preferred pronouns so that you don't make assumptions that they are gender congruent. Just because they look feminine doesn't mean that they identify as a woman. Uh, also, when you're asking about somebody's important relationships, not to assume that their partner is a husband or a wife or that they have a boyfriend, if they happen to be a girl, you should say, do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? So even linguistically, you are giving assent to the idea that uh, heteronormative assumptions are um, unreasonable. Look, this conversation is not over. I feel like we have opened a Pandora's box uh, where we could start to continue to speak about the nature of the cultural change that is upon us and just how far-reaching it could be as these ideas gain the ascendancy. I'll be joined again on the next episode of Voice for Values to continue this discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Taylor. But for today, Dr. Taylor, thanks for joining us. Mm, You're welcome. Thank you.